Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to our fourth season of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis, and I am so excited today to introduce our first guest for 2022, Polly Trottenberg, the Deputy Secretary of the United States Department of Transportation. Polly, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks, Michelle. It's great to be here. Today, Polly, we wanted to really hear some of your insights into your incredible career, what drives you, what's top of mind for you at the moment, and your thoughts on leadership and diversity, and of course, some really exciting developments that we hear are happening in the United States in transportation. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you, so let's get into it. To start with, I'd love to hear about your current role as Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Transportation. What does that entail and what are your top priorities? All right. Well, that's a great question. Happy to kick us off there. You know, Deputy Secretaries play, I think, a sort of a multitude of roles in big federal agencies. It is particularly fun, I will say, to be a Deputy Secretary in the Biden administration and to be Deputy to, I have to say, an incredible Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg. We sort of get to to be a little bit of jack of all trades. Um, We are the chief operational officers for the agency. So that means we're focusing on sort of a lot of the big important things that keep big federal agencies running. USDOT, by the way, is a a 55,000 person agency. So we're focusing on, you know, all the important things we're thinking about hiring and IT and, and procurement. And, you know, these days thinking a lot about, you know, how we're managing COVID and return to work and those kinds of issues but also responsibility for what is turning out to be just an incredible time, as you sort of alluded to, Michelle, in American transportation, helping to implement what in our country is, I think, arguably the largest transportation bill in our history, and one that has the potential to be incredibly transformative on a bunch of different fronts, Um, just in improving our infrastructure, on safety, on a couple of areas that are key priorities for the Biden administration tackling climate change, um, focusing on equity, an important issue here right now in the U.S., and something that, you know, we all love about transportation investments, a chance also to create jobs, to stimulate the economy, to make sure that our supply chain is operating efficiently. So I have to say, I'm, I feel like I'm one of the luckiest people in the world right now with the, with the role I have. I, I get a lot of day-to-day responsibilities, but a lot of opportunities to focus on some really big and important issues. Yeah, wow. I mean, there is such a remit that you're looking after and and I think resonating a lot of issues 
that we have on our side of the world, particularly around COVID and returning to work. And I think lots of cities are, are grappling with how to deal with that. But I've got to say how exciting to have the largest transportation bill in the history of America. What, what an incredible time to be working in that space. And I know that you've recently uh, started in this role. And I wanted to ask you, how did you end up in the role that you're in? I'd love to hear what has led you to this role and what's been the key to your success. That's a great question. And look, I think for a lot of folks, perhaps who get into transportation, it's often an interesting journey that that has some twists and turns to it. And, and certainly I'd say that's the case for me. I've always loved the field, but I've done a lot of different things in my career. I've, I've worked at the local and the state and the federal level. I've, I've worked in transportation agencies. I, I, as, you, as you noted, I got to run New York, the New York City Department of Transportation for seven years. But I've also had a big background in legislative work, both at the state level and in the U.S. Senate. And I think for me, it's a little bit of, of two loves. I mean, I love transportation, but but I do also love the political process. And, you know, at least in the United States, the two are very intertwined. You know, transportation is carried out, you know, perhaps more so in the U.S. than in some other countries at all three levels of government. And, you know, brings a lot of stakeholders and players to the table. And so sort of having a love of the political process and, you know, understanding how that works, I think, can really help both sort of inform and, and just also make, make the experience of working on transportation just that much more sort of interesting and rewarding. It's a really interesting reflection, actually, about the intersection between transportation and political process. And I think many cities and countries find that there is such a link and, and how important it is to collaborate and involve all the stakeholders. You mentioned New York City. I do want to come back, actually, and talk to you a bit more about your time there as commissioner. But I actually wanted to, I guess, reflect a bit more about your past and your career and particularly how you got started. And I know that you are a history major at Barnard College in New York City. You have a master's in public policy from the Kennedy School of Government, um, you know, amazing credentials. What drew you to work in transportation initially? You know, how did you get into the sector? What's kept you in the portfolio for so much of your career? I've talked about this elsewhere. I mean, for me, I, I was in, you know, college in New York City back in the 80s, which was a very challenging time in urban America, in the United States, and I think in other, in other countries around the world, and a time when there was a keen focus on the finances of cities, the public safety, you know, their economies, and in the case of New York City, you know, a real focus on the mass transit system, on the subway system, which, which was in real crisis. And so, you know, I sort of got it just an early front seat to being immersed in those debates and, and, you know, kind of, I guess, developed a lifelong fascination and an interest to, to be a part of that work. It's funny too, Michelle, I've, I've reflected a bit on what it meant to be a history major. It's funny, I don't know what, what the case in, in, in you know, New Zealand and Australia, in the United States, there's often a debate about what is the place of a liberal arts education and, and shouldn't we be more sort of career focused and focusing on STEM education. And I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive, but I do really think that a, being a history major, and we're also having a debate in the United States right now about how we teach our own history, not always an easy question to resolve. I think the discipline encourages you to think sort of thematically, contextually, to sort of ask big questions, to look for deeper trends. And for me, that that is what has been 
you know, an interesting part of my transportation career. Now, particularly in New York City, I got to also be very operational, running a ferry system, paving roadways, you know, things that are very bread and butter. But, you know, some of the most interesting parts of, of being in transportation are thinking about those big themes. We're grappling with them. I know you are in your part of the world as well. How are we tackling climate change? How do we operationalize that quickly in a way that you know is sustainable, is sustainable economically, that, that treats all populations fairly? What are the technological challenges? What are the political challenges? You know, likewise equity, likewise safety. So the fun is, I think, the intersection. What, what's kept me, you know, going in, in this career, the intersection of the very practical and operational, but the tackling the big themes and the big cross-cutting challenges. That's a really interesting reflection, actually, because it is that mix, right, of, of operational and, and also the big themes and challenges. I've never quite thought of it that way, but certainly some of those key themes, I think, are, are cutting across so many regions of the world right now, the impacts of climate change. And I think there's a real increasing spotlight on safety and equity in our transport systems. And, and as you know, our association, you know, we're focused on public transport, which I know you refer to in the United States as transit. And I, and I want to ask you a bit more about what you're doing there in that space. And I've referred to the bipartisan infrastructure bill already. I'd love to hear more about that. I've done some reading and actually the stats that I've read might be wrong. So please correct me. But, you know, from what I've read, this bill is going to infuse billions of dollars into transport infrastructure across the country you know, create jobs, estimated average of 1.5 million jobs per year for the next 10 years. You know, I think this is so important. I know that in our region, you know, many of the the politicians and and city officials have been looking at America and and watching what's happening there and understanding the kind of investment going in. And, And I wanted to ask you, you know, what does this bill mean for the US Department of Transportation and the communities it serves? And what are your top investment priorities for that funding? And and how are you going to make the decisions about where the funding goes? All right. Well, Michelle, that was a a lot of questions rolled into one question. So I'll do my best to give you a good answer, but but stop me or, or add on as needed. You know, I think like a lot of countries here in the U.S., we're seeing a real evolution in how we think about transportation. You know, we had traditionally been a more highway centric transportation system, but you know, since sort of the heyday of the interstate era here in the U.S., which was really 40s, 50s, and 60s, you know, there has been a growing focus on, you, you call it public transport, we, we call it public transit, on how we rebalance our transportation system. Um, you know, particularly now with, with the, I think, the priorities of climate inequity, there is a growing recognition, not everywhere, not in all parts of our country. We have a very big and diverse country, as you know, but I think increasingly that we need a more balanced transportation system. And that, to me, is what is exciting about the the bipartisan infrastructure law. It is going to be, for the U.S. in our context, the largest investment in transit we have ever seen, the largest investment in passenger rail. We're going to be investing more in passenger rail by the time this bill is done than we have invested here in the U.S. in the entire 50-year history of Amtrak, which is our passenger rail company. We have a lot of discretionary dollars, which we can also add to investing in transit, investing in rail, and, and also what we would call the active modes of transportation, walking and biking. Uh, so, you know, for us, it gives us an opportunity to sort of continue, I think, to catalyze a trend that we're already seeing in, in many parts of the U.S., which is, again, shifting to a transportation system that is more multimodal, that is more environmentally sustainable, and that is hopefully 
I would say, more city friendly and more focused on reaching and serving populations in the U.S. that traditionally have not been well served by our transportation system. Yes. So that's a really interesting, I think, kind of focus, you know, to move away from traditional highways and think more around the multimodal transport network. And and so, and you talked about, you know, rail infrastructure as well. So have you got a process in place yet where you'll you'll work out how to prioritise the projects or, or is that still being worked through at the moment? Well, I'd say the bill, and again, the bill covers, you know, in addition to highways and transit, just to be clear, it covers even a broader section of infrastructure. I mentioned passenger rail, but also investments in airports and ports, and then electric vehicle charging infrastructure, and then even beyond transportation, things like um, broadband and, you know, in our case, you know, removing and upgrading red lead pipes and waters and sewer systems. So the bill is, is very expansive. In the U.S. context, typically the way we give out federal funds is we give a decent amount of them out by formula, which means a certain set amount that's, that's negotiated in our Congress that goes, it'll either go out by state or go out by locality. So a decent chunk of our dollars will first and foremost go out by formula. And a lot of that funding does go in the case of transportation through state DOTs. So step one for us is to try and work closely with them. We obviously want to make sure that they are, you know, maintaining and investing in their infrastructure. And of course, that does include roads and bridges. But the department also has a lot of discretionary dollars, in our case, around $200 billion, which is, you know, a very large pot. There, because the, the dollars are competitive, you know, states and localities have to come and apply for the money. It, it gives us a much bigger opportunity Michelle, to sort of put our stamp on how those dollars go out the door and to to focus on our priorities. In some cases, the dollars are going through programs that we've already had up and running for many years. But in some cases, we're creating brand new programs. We're, We're creating a brand new program to focus on roadway safety at the local level. We'll be creating a brand new program to help localities with the EV charging infrastructure, as I mentioned. We'll have a brand new program focusing on mega projects, those big, complicated, expensive projects that you know can have really large economic impacts. We'll have a program focusing on reconnecting communities, an issue here in the US. You know, in, in our interstate era, we built a lot of highways that tore through neighborhoods, particularly low-income and minority neighborhoods. And this is, you know, one of the many ways we hope to see how we can re-knit those communities back together. Thanks for sharing a bit more about that, Polly. I think it's just really interesting to understand how different countries approach investment and funding. You know, just for context, in Australia and New Zealand, we have unprecedented levels of investment going into transport infrastructure, both in roads as well as in public transport, particularly in rail. Um, and so, and actually, we've been talking to American colleagues as well about sharing some of the learnings around the investment in infrastructure and how that's been rolled out. So it's interesting just to hear, you know, the framework and, and how that works there. So thank you for sharing that. I wanted to pick up on something that we've also been talking about in this mix, the discussion about highways. But I think that what sits really underneath that is that, well, and I know in Australia, New Zealand, we're in car loving territory here. So, you know, people love their cars. You know, there's still the the dream around the kind of two cars in the driveway. And even though we have some cities with great public transport networks, a lot more is being done to improve that. But in essence, 
you know, the public transport sector here is really focused on avoiding a car-led recovery because passenger numbers are down. I mean, obviously we've got changing working from home practices, but I I think the challenge and opportunity we have is around, you know, how do you get people out of their cars and moving around cities in a more sustainable way that also improves the livability of our cities and regions. And I know that in the US, and you've kind of referred a bit to this as well, um, you know, there is a tendency to rely on car, particularly when you've got geographically dispersed cities. And I wanted to ask you, are there any cities either in the United States or internationally uh, that you think jurisdictions could learn from in this regard to, you know, car use and, and how to enable more sustainable transport options? Yeah, it's a great question. And and I would always say, and look, I've, I've said this at the federal level, and I always used to say it in New York, the way to sort of reduce auto use and promote more sustainable modes of transportation, you have to give people good choices. And, you know, I always want to be very careful to say, you know, look, in the United States, it's a very big, diverse country. Obviously, what you're going to do in New York City is not what you're going to do out in Montana. You know, there are parts of our country that are very rural and then parts that are very, very dense and urban. So, you know, I think some of what I want to say here is probably going to apply more to the urban and suburban parts of the country than, you know, in the middle of of deep, deep rural places where, you know, the nearest grocery store is 50 miles away. But again, I do think it is about giving people good choices. And that that does mean you need to make those investments here in the U.S. And I'll give an example. You know, they're they're obviously the big cities. I, I worked in one New York where you have pretty extraordinary mass transit systems. And, you know, they cover large parts of the city. But I certainly saw in my time in New York, that said, there were parts of the city where the mass transit system didn't reach. And, you know, that that could be a combination of parts of the city that were far flung from the center city. New York City is actually a 300 square mile city, so it's got a pretty big surface area. But you also could see that there was a real correlation with lower income communities and communities of color. And, So goal number one, to make mass transit a more viable option, you've got to provide high quality, reliable, affordable service. And, you know, the federal government has a huge role to play with that here in the United States. But in our system, states and localities have a role to play, too. So all parts of government need to be working together. They they need to have aligned goals and, and bring resources to the table and be working very closely with local communities. And in my time as being a local official, you know, no level of government has all the answers. You, you need to be working locally with local stakeholders, with local residents, you know, with, with, with local advocates and, and local elected officials. I think there's such important points around the collaboration locally and really understanding the needs of the community, but also just the importance of the investment. And I think something that, you know, we're reflecting on a lot in our region is it's not just the investment that's going into infrastructure, but also the investment that a government can make and enable and facilitate innovation as well. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about this topic. You know, I was really excited to read that innovation is a top priority for the United States Department of Transportation. I think there's a real shift that we're seeing, um, you know, from government authorities around the world focusing more on this topic. And a key challenge that we often hear about when it comes to innovation is that new and emerging technologies are developing much faster than policymakers can keep up. You know, having the, the right frameworks and in place to kind of enable the market to really develop innovation and how do you harvest it. And I wanted to ask, in your view, what do you think policymakers can be doing better to support innovation while also keeping people safe? 
It's a great question. I mean, it is just in general, I'd say the past 10 years have been just an incredibly interesting and amazing time in sort of the innovation space and transportation. So many new things, new, you know, new data analytics, new technologies. It's it's been very exciting, but as you point out, very fast moving. And I'll tell you particularly some lessons I learned, I think, on the front lines in New York City, where I was really involved in some hands-on public-private partnerships on things like, you know, shared mobility, like bike shares and and scooters and, and mopeds and some of the data analytics and work with sensors, you know, a lot of different ways we were engaging with the technology companies. In my time in New York City, I got invited to a sort of a, a technology-focused conference. And the topic that they asked me to speak on was basically, how can cities get out of the way so that the, you know, the innovators can, can do their thing? And I, I kind of had to turn the paradigm on its head. I said, I, I'm, we're not getting out of the way. You know, public officials are here to protect the public interest. And we want to embrace innovation. And as you point out, you know, particularly there are incredible innovations that I think can help make our, our transportation system safer. But we are there to protect the public interest. And that means we need to have a seat at the table. And in terms of a public-private partnership, you know, we're going to be very much wanting to make sure that the private sector side of the house can innovate and, and hopefully, you know, have financial sustainability. But the partnerships in the technology have to keep public policy goals. You know, we're, we're not for technology just for technology's sake. You know, on the, on the public side, it can be, you know, all kinds of different things, safety, access, sustainability, you name it. And so, you know, both parties have to come together at the table. I think that's a really interesting and important reflection that public officials have to be at the table, you know, because I think there is a debate about this, right? Do you just let the market innovate and, and you know, let them run? But I think it is important to, to have those frameworks in place. Uh, and also, I think there's something really critical at the heart of it, which is about ensuring that the types of innovations that third parties are bringing in are actually in the interests of of the city and regions and community that we're serving, right? I think that's a really important part too. Thanks for sharing so much on this. I actually want to pivot the conversation now and hear more about your career and your leadership style. You know, there is no doubt you have such an incredible wealth of experience and I'm sure our audience would love to hear some insights and reflections from you. So as we've mentioned, you were Commissioner of the New York City Department of Transportation for seven years before taking on your current role. So in New York City, I understand you were running the largest state-level transportation department in the United States, spanning 6,000 employees and a multi-billion dollar budget. So I want to ask, you know, how did you manage running a large agency with a big workforce, a complex program, and what do you think your success factors were in that kind of role? It's a great question. I will just say not not the largest state-level transportation department. I would say one of the largest municipal transportation departments larger in the United States than some state DOTs, but, but certainly not as big as, as the largest state DOT. So just, just to be clear there, nonetheless, a very large and diverse agency with a multi-billion dollar capital budget and enormous operating budget, and as you point out, 6,000 employees. I've thought deeply throughout my career about you know, how to be a good manager. And you know, in the city context, you know, a few very important lessons. Um, it's true at the federal context as well. For leadership, you know, you need to have a team around you that you trust, and then you need to empower them and you need to support them. It, it is, I've often seen as people kind of move up the leadership ladder, 
they get the team around them and they sort of, you know, delegate and try and let go. But then if from time to time it doesn't go their way, then they sort of fall back to wanting to do it all themselves and perhaps not sort of supporting the team. It's incredibly important. I think if you want to have a high functioning organization, that's going to be accomplishing a lot of things as we did in New York City. And as let me tell you what we're doing now at, at USDOT, it sounds like a cliche, but you really do have to empower the team and trust their leadership and, you know, provide guidance and be decisive when needed but you are really there to support them and empower them. Um, That's sort of been my philosophy about it. Another thing that I feel particularly strongly about, because I've been in organizations that have done this well and and organizations that have done this less well, you know, decision-making really needs to be, I think, consensus building and transparent. People need to feel like they've had an opportunity to give input, that their ideas, um, you know, are seriously debated that there's that there's back and forth and engagement and then in the end however you might reach a decision that everybody understands why you made it um, and so you're you're accountable for your decision making i just think i've seen organizations where discussion happens and then maybe someone goes off and makes the decision in a back room somewhere and, and the folks who cared about the outcome of the decision never know why and i just think that can be very frustrating so for me you know it's an important piece of leadership how you make decisions it really, I think, can can sort of be one of the most sort of things that helps you sink or sink or swim um, in terms of you know organizations that are that are tackling big challenges. And I would just say this is true in general in transportation because it is a field as we as we sort of started this conversation. It is a field that's growing, that's becoming more multidisciplinary, that's you know got a lot of involvement in the political system, as you point out, a lot of new technological developments on the horizon. Um, you know, so a lot's coming at people in these big transportation organizations and the ability to make good decisions and then execute. That's just, I think it's on the top of, of every transportation leaders list. There's such interesting reflections, actually. Uh, I'm not sure we talk enough about decision-making really, you know, decision-making actually hasn't come up so many times in this podcast either. So Polly, thanks for sharing that. I think that there's quite a lot for listeners to think about in relation to the decision-making process and transparency in their organizations. I wanted to ask you, you know, we're on the topic of talking about your time in New York as DOT commissioner and just pivoting back to the conversation we were having about the way people are moving around our cities. You know, during that time, I understand, you know, you were in New York when, when the pandemic hit and certainly for New York, cities around the world, there was such a significant drop in the number of people using public transit. And I wanted to ask, you know, do you have any thoughts about what cities like New York or, you know, other major cities around the world can be doing to not only bring back the old customers or the, you know, the the returning customers, but attract new customers as well to the public transit network? It's a great question. And look, I, I would say this. Yes, I, I was at New York City DOT for a good portion of the pandemic, and it was an incredible time, heartbreaking, challenging, but, but also a time where we did some experiments. You know, we, we turned our streets over for recreation and restaurants, you know, as I as I sort of like to joke a bit at the time, you know, because of the urgency of the pandemic, we we came up with a way to, to open our streets up that under normal circumstances in New York City would have taken five years. And we we worked it out in, you know, a number of weeks. So, you know, the pandemic has brought unprecedented challenges, but also I think it's given us all a chance sometimes to, to think anew about a lot of the 
sort of the, the elements of our work. Mass transit is a huge area. Obviously, transit systems around the U.S., and I know in other countries, ridership has plummeted. I'm happy to say it is starting here in the U.S. to come back. In New York, for example, the MTA, they just hit a, a milestone of 3 million riders the other day. So people are starting to come back to work. And I think hopefully uh, as Omicron, we hope recedes and, and is not replaced by another variant, we're, we're going to continue to see that trend. But I think another trend we are seeing, we're seeing it here in Washington, for example, the federal government is probably not going back to everyone's in the office five days a week. The workforce has told us in no uncertain terms that they like the flexibility of you know, having some opportunities to work from home, you know, also to come into the office. Most people want a, a hybrid, perhaps want a hybrid environment. And I would say for us at the federal level, just it has also been nice in a way because it has enabled us to tap into the talents of more people around the country who, who aren't necessarily in a position to relocate to the, to the Washington area but it has certainly meant a reduction in transit ridership. We have in the US, I don't know how you've done it in, in New Zealand and Australia, we have invested a lot of federal dollars into helping those transit systems sort of maintain their operations, but everyone is thinking about what the, what the new paradigm is gonna be. And you know, there's an interest in bringing ridership back and sort of bringing our cities back to the same level of activity, but also a thought about our, our travel and commuting patterns gonna change in permanent ways you know, that we will need to accommodate. You know, in New York City, when I was there, we were already increasingly seeing that, that the that, that we weren't having a peak travel time anymore, that travel was sort of spreading out more and more throughout the entire day and over weekends as people were sort of using mass transit for a whole bunch of destinations, not just work-related. I think we will see more of that in our future. But I think, Michelle, you've, you've just raised a huge question that I think Everyone who is involved in, you know, sort of managing large transit agencies is grappling with what is the future of mass transit? How do we plan for it? How do we make sure um, that we sustain these systems, which are just an incredibly important part of our urban economies and our national economy? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think anyone has the answer, right? And actually, I think it also depends on the different cities and regions that you're talking about. But certainly, I think there's an important point that you refer to, and it is around how do you enable the new travel patterns in the new world of working from home? You know, I'm working from home today. And and absolutely, I think here as well, there's a view that not many organisations will have their staff working from the office five days a week. So that has an impact as well. Polly, I wanted to pick up on another theme that you've mentioned quite a few times and it's around equity and it's something that I feel really passionate about and I'm excited that I feel it's actually getting more attention in the transport sector and industry and in the conversations that the public service is having. And I've read a few of the other talks that you've done and I know that there's a book in particular that you've referenced in in some other talks that you've made and and that book is The Power Broker by Robert Caro and and I wanted to ask you a bit more about this because I think it's interesting some of the reflections um, that I've read about. You know, the, the book raises a lot of questions, I think, around equity and policy decision making and, and and actually, you know, decisions that are that are made and you reference this and, you know, the importance of that. And I wanted to ask you about your experience in reading this book, The Power Broker, you know, and, and the inspiration you found in it. I, I understand that you read it in college and then you reread it when you became the New York City Department of Transportation Commissioner. And I want to ask you, how has this book impacted your own decision making? The book has been profound for me. And I would say not just for me, 
probably there are very few people you can talk to in urban transportation and urban governance who've not read The Power Broker and been profoundly shaped by it. It is, you know, just an extraordinary book. I would recommend it to your listeners. It's, It's a heavy read, but you, you know, particularly you learn so much about what happened, particularly in the US, but I think there were versions of it that, that happened in other countries that what happened you know, in our interstate building era and the decisions we made, the decisions that made a permanent impact on our transportation system. And I think more importantly, the decisions we made that had devastating effects on local communities, the effects of which we're still grappling with you know, more than a half century later. You know, when I read the book the first time, it sort of got me just traveling around New York City and sort of neighboring areas, Long Island, other places where Robert Moses, uh, you know, had a real significant imprint on the infrastructure there. And just getting to sort of see for myself and think about his legacy, um, the places where he did tremendous damage. And then, you know, Robert Kerr is a complicated figure historically, places where he built pools and playgrounds and just the sweep of his influence um, is something extraordinary. And there are Moses-like figures in other cities. No city quite had a, a Robert Moses, but certainly Boston, Chicago, other big U.S. cities, you know, sometimes had that powerful figure who had a huge impact on, you know, not only the transportation system, public housing, but just how neighborhoods were put together. So that made a, a huge impression on me in my uh, younger days. And then I sort of refreshed my memory about the book as I became New York City DOT commissioner and had one fascinating epiphany. One of the things about Robert Moses at the height of his power is he managed to be both a state official, a local official to control both the transportation, local transportation system, as well as the local park system in New York City. And so some of the roadways that he built and kind of left behind are these legacy roadways, which are very complicated. They weave through parks. They're half owned by the city and half owned by the state. They're half parks, they're half roadways. And when I became New York City DOT commissioner, I, I inherited these roadways and they are the most challenging to grapple with in terms of just the enormous volumes of traffic they carry while also being just you know, infrastructure that was just tremendously destructive to the local and surrounding neighborhoods and figuring out how to handle those legacy highways in a modern era that cares about equity and climate. It's just, you know, Moses just left, particularly in New York City, but there are versions of it in other cities, just an epically challenging legacy. And one that I think, you know, we will be working hard for many years to to help uh, undo. It's a very interesting history that you have, actually. And thanks for sharing that, Polly. I think a few of our listeners now will probably be reaching out to read the book. I wanted to ask you now about diversity. You know, I mean, this is really at the heart, right, of why we're doing this podcast. It's actually about profiling women. You know, I'm a big believer you can't be what you can't see, you know, and and for a lot of particularly younger women in the transportation industry, you know, we want them to be able to hear, you know, these voices. But, But also I think you know, there's really strategic and, and practical as well questions and opportunities to increase diversity, particularly in the leadership ranks. You know, I know here we're still nowhere near having a 50-50 balance of women working in transport at leadership levels. And of course, diversity is much broader than that. We've touched a bit on that as well. And I wanted to ask you, in your view, what do you think are maybe the top one or two things that we should be focused on as a sector to increase diversity at a senior level? 
Well, thanks for that question. First of all, let me acknowledge, I think you have done some pretty extraordinary things in New Zealand and um, probably on the larger question of gender equity, particularly in the political system, I think we will approach the task with humility because we have a lot to learn from your country. But in transportation, look, it's no secret it has been traditionally a male-dominated field, not the most diverse field. I do think some of the trends that we've been talking about today, Michelle, are sort of part of what's changing the field. Again, as it's moved from perhaps a more engineering-focused field to being one that is, as we've said, more interdisciplinary, that has a political focus and a, and a cultural focus and a you know sort of a public engagement focus and a planning focus. That, that is bringing, I think, more diverse populations into the discipline, but there is still a long way to go. And particularly, I think we see it at the, at the national level, you know, different sectors are much more diverse and, and much more gender balanced than others. In mass transit, for example, it, it tends to be a much more diverse workforce with sort of a lot more diverse leadership in, I would say, at least in the U.S. context, in disciplines like aviation and maritime, you know, less diverse. But I would also say this has been, I think, an incredibly exciting time in the transportation field. Here in the U.S., we've been having a, a larger, you know, very, very heartfelt reckoning, I'd say, with equity, racial equity, but, you know, gender equity as well. And, you know, it has produced, I think, an incredible and, and long overdue focus on how we can be sure, you know, in, in all our major institutions, our public institutions, our private institutions, academic, philanthropic, that the workforce and the leadership really represents, you know, the diversity of our country. I think we've made some progress, but I think there are lots of ways that we will continue to do better and learn how to how to make sure, you know, that transportation represents and serves all segments of at least our society. But but I would also say just Michelle, the task we approach with humility, I think we probably have some lessons to learn. We need to do better. We want to have a, a transportation field that is inviting and diverse and bringing in young talent and, and welcoming um, and able to provide, you know, terrific careers and, and opportunities for advancements for a really diverse population. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions before we wrap up about your your career. And I, and I think, you know, our, our listeners would really appreciate you sharing a little bit of insight. So first of all, a question that I always ask our guests is how do you plan your career? So do you have like a five or 10 year plan or do you prefer to take the opportunities as they come? I have taken the opportunities as they come. I think part of the hallmark of my career, as I say, is that it has been, you know, one in which I have had legislative experience. And even in my sort of full-on transportation jobs, they tend to be in a political context. And, and particularly here in the United States, that means you have to be nimble. That means, you know, you are, are typically working for an elected official or as part of an administration that you know, comes and goes as, uh, you know, the political winds change. I think that is part of what has made my career exciting and fantastic, but it also means you, you cannot always plan ahead and you have to definitely sort of seize opportunities um, as you see them. Yeah, that's really interesting, you know, because there's always such a mix, you know, when, I, when I've when i interviewed our guests of how people plan or perhaps don't plan, you know, their careers. So thanks for sharing that, Polly. I also wanted to ask you, you know, as you reflect on your career, is there a project or initiative that you've worked on that you're most proud of? It's a great question. And I, I think I'll have to give two answers because I think I will give, I'll sort of start with a New York City answer, but then I want to talk a bit about my work at the federal level because I'm very proud of both, but it's a very different set of challenges and accomplishments. 
One of the things I'm most proud of in New York is something that we took on uh, as the first city in the U.S. to really embrace Vision Zero, which was a commitment to reducing fatalities and serious injuries on our roadways. And it was a big commitment to make because it can be a very challenging problem to tackle. And, you know, in New York City, though, under then the, the leadership of Mayor Bill de Blasio, we went at the problem in a way that I just found inspirational. We were interdisciplinary and we brought in our Department of Transportation, our police department, our taxi and limousine commission. We worked with advocates. We worked with elected officials at the local and state level. We, we sort of took a an all hands on deck approach and it was pretty transformational. And it, it became just an incredible template for me about when you wanna tackle really difficult, challenging, but important missions, how do you motivate people? How do you mobilize them? You know, one thing though, I just wanna be careful, I always say, uh, Michelle, about Vision Zero, because we sort of talk about the numbers, reducing fatalities and injuries, but, but I always like to just remember that these aren't just numbers, these aren't just statistics. You know, in the case of roadway fatalities, this is our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors. These are the people we, we see every day. And that's, uh, you know, that kind of work is also just, it's particularly inspirational because when you do it well, you know you've actually saved some lives. You know someone got home for dinner who, who might not have otherwise. And so it's richly rewarding. I would say now I'm happy to announce that at the federal level, we have now committed for the first time in American history to something called the National Roadway Safety Strategy which is going to, I hope, bring some of that same innovation and that, that same interdisciplinary approach to how we tackle roadway safety at the national level. We in the U.S. see a devastating amount of fatalities on our roadways. Last year, around 38,000 people died on U.S. roadways. Our roadway fatality rates are dramatically higher than a lot of our European counterparts, and there is a lot of work we can do there to save lives. So, that is unfinished business, but something we just rolled out a few weeks ago, and I'm just tremendously excited. I'm hoping at the end of my time at the federal level, we will be able to look back and say that we really changed the trajectory of roadway safety in the United States and saved a lot of lives in the process. Polly, thank you so much for sharing that. I actually got some goosebumps as you were talking because it's so important to reflect on the work and the value of that work to reduce road fatalities. And, and I mean, that's an issue that we have here and, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. So great to, you know, hear some of the work that you've been involved with and, and continue to be. Polly, I have one more question. It's the question I always finish up with. You've already generously shared a wealth of your experience and insights. But my final question is, what would you say your top piece of advice would be for younger females in their careers or even just early career transport professionals? I think it's advice. I give it to people in transportation, but it, it, it probably applies across you know, many different disciplines. I have seen in my career that there can be a difference in sort of the confidence level. I see this as a real gender difference between men and women, at least here in the United States. That, that can also sometimes apply um, to people of color. And so my advice there is often very basic, which is, you know, have confidence in your opinions, you know, take a seat at the table, make your voice heard. I think there have been legitimate reasons why, you know, women and people of color in, in transportation and other disciplines can feel like when they make their voices heard, they're not always listened to or, or don't get a good reaction. But, 
you know, I think, again, as we've mentioned, sort of at this moment, this moment, at least in the U.S., which is a real national reckoning on equity, there's never been a bigger need for those voices. And by the way, also for the voices of young people. You know, one thing the sort of the technological revolution has done, you know, as you know, is, you know, young people often come to the table with incredible technological savvy, social media savvy, information age savvy in a way that, you know, frankly, people of, of my generation, which which started out as an analog generation, we don't have. So I think every generation brings incredible value and perspective. And I just, you know, it's my encouragement to young people, all young people, but particularly women and people of color, you know, step in, share your opinions. You have a place at the table. When people get to hear you and hear your insights, the organization benefits. And, and I think it's it's good for you in, in terms of, of your career and your professional development. That's awesome advice. I'm at the end of my questions, but before we sign off, I just wanted to ask, is there anything that you'd like to share or that you didn't get to cover off or any final words for our audience? No, I I think we covered everything. (laughs) Awesome. We have had such a wide ranging conversation about transport priorities in the US and your career and your advice as well. I just want to say thank you so much, Polly. It's been an incredible honor to interview you. I was so delighted when you accepted our invitation. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. And one day I do hope to meet you in person at at one stage in Washington. But um, until then, take care and goodbye. All right. Thanks so much, Michelle. And thanks, Dylan. And yeah, hopefully you guys will make it to the US. Maybe I have been to Australia. I was in Australia once 11 years ago, but I hope someday to get back again. Oh, well, that would be amazing. Please let us know if you if you do come to Australia. Thank you so much. That was Polly Trottenberg, the Deputy Secretary of the United States Department of Transportation. What a fantastic way to launch our fourth series of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis. We have many more awesome female public transport leaders lined up for you. So make sure you tune in again soon. Thank you for listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. This series is produced by Dylan Adler with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Thanks for joining us as we profile women working in public transport and sustainable mobility and inspire the next generation of female leaders. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving.